make the most of your life. When you remove the blocks that are holding you back, you can bring inspiration, passion, and purpose to yourself and those around you. This is the Hoffman Connection with your hosts, Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon. Our hosts and their guests will give you the tools that you need to improve yourself by bringing you closer to what really matters. Now, here's your host. Well, welcome to the Hoffman Connection. This is Raz and Grassi, and we're coming to you live from beautiful San Rafael in Northern California. I am the president of the Hoffman Institute, and if you've never heard of the Hoffman Institute, we are celebrating 45 years as the leading personal development program, helping people who are serious about change. We have 13 centers in 11 countries, helped about 85,000 people worldwide, and our primary program is called the Hoffman Process. It's an amazing eight-day retreat of personal development and discovery. My co-host today is Hoffman teacher and therapist Ed McLoon. Over to you, Ed. Thanks, Raz. I've been teaching the process uh, for 21 years now. And our, our purpose here with the Hoffman Connection Show is to bring you connection, inspiration, tools, and help you connect more deeply, deeply to a life you love uh, by bringing you a whole array of guests like uh, Elizabeth Lindsay, our guest today. If um, you are more interested in finding out about the Hoffman process this afternoon at 5 o'clock Pacific time, and every Tuesday afternoon at 5, there's a free and confidential inf- introduction call about our work. And you can find out more about that from our website, which is the HoffmanInstitute.org. HoffmanInstitute.org. There's a button there that will um, tell you about more about our radio show, but also about the introductory call every Tuesday afternoon at 5 o'clock. So to bring you our guest, we'll throw it back to you, Raz. Thanks, Ed. Today we're joined by National Geographic Explorer, Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay. And Elizabeth is the first Polynesian explorer and female fellow in the history of the National Geographic Society. And she is an internationally recognized expert in the field of what's called cultural intelligence. She'll tell us more about that, but that's basically a dynamic, holistic system of knowledge and wisdom based on indigenous knowledge, indigenous science. What do the indigenous people know that we've lost? And she is in demand around the world. She's constantly on the on the move, giving keynote addresses. Uh, and, in fact, in 2010, she received the Visionary Award from the United Nations for her contributions in intercultural engagement and understanding. So she credits her lifelong commitment to the Native Hawaiian elders who raised her, She's uh, also very beautiful to look at. She's a former Miss Hawaii, and she was named Woman of the Year for the Big Island of Hawaii in 2004. She's an award-winning filmmaker as well. She made a film called Then There Were None, which chronicles the near extinction of Native Hawaiians. Elizabeth has received numerous awards, including the prestigious Cine Eagle for her cinematographic work. So, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you, Raz. Thank you, Ed. You're welcome. Nice to have you here. So, Elizabeth, here you are, the first Polynesian explorer and female female fellow in the history of the National Geographic Society. What does that 
How did, How did that, that happen? happen? Okay. What's your story? That's a very good question because I didn't know there was a formal title as an explorer. The truth is I think we're all explorers. My background is as an anthropologist, as a cultural anthropologist, and I have a very simple view on what anthropology means. And for me, it's about bearing witness to the world. It's about loving the world so much and wanting to be a part of humanity. And when I was very young, I was raised, as you'd mentioned, by Native Hawaiian elders. And at the age of seven, they brought me into a circle and sat me down and prophesied what they believed would happen in the world in the year 2000, going into 2012. And what they said was this, there will come a time when the world will be in trouble, and we will not be alive to see that day, but you will. And it will take the wisdom from the far edges of the earth to call the world into balance. And then they went on and said, you will go far away to keep the voices of these ancestors alive, and it will sometimes be a lonely road. But as you travel, you will look into the eyes of seeming strangers, and you will recognize your family, and it will take all of you. And I think as a child, I somehow knew that it, I think as children, or a remembering that Hoffman certainly speaks to about innate wisdom within us, that I knew it to be so. And so many years later, without real planning on my part, I became an anthropologist because I loved, I loved traveling. And even though I grew up in a small town, I knew that I would go around the world. And as a child, I remember saying to friends, I'm going to go around the world someday. And we were all so poor, and we grew up in this tiny little plantation community. And they said, oh, you are not. You are such a liar. And I thought, no, I am. And I'm going to see the world, and that's where I'm going to live my life. So the long and the short of it is that based on this prophecy, and many years later, at the age of 50, I became a widow. And... um the National Geographic was tracking my work. It's like becoming a MacArthur Fellow. You don't know that you've been nominated. You don't know that someone is following your work. And I went on an expedition, a very difficult expedition, to um, see my mentor before he died. And um, and it was because of that work that I, I was nominated and became an explorer for the Geographic. How long have you been that? Uh, for four years now, going on five. Fantastic. Well, tell us. You know, and uh, I hope this question is a good one, but it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh-huh. What must the dominant culture what 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 must the dominant culture learn from the indigenous cultures for the future of, for the future of humanity? Well, you know, this is a very interesting. Going back to the prophecy that I had mentioned, is that in the 21st century, in modernity, if that's what we refer to as a dominant culture is that we know that what we have been doing thus far is not working. We have, you know, one of the things that I say often is that we are bloated with information, but we are starved for wisdom. So we have vast sums of data and information, but we are really lacking an ability to listen deeply to that which is wise. So in my conversations with Google and with other companies, I love the technology. I think it's really important. But I also value ancient technology, and I see that as valuable. 
not to be marginalized or dismissed. I think that it is the wedding of both technologies, of ancient and cutting edge, that will bring us to a place where we can use the best of everything that's available to us. Now, the elders who raised me, these Native Hawaiian elders, would have said the same thing. You take the best that's currently available and you ground it in wisdom, which is currently what we're not doing. Well, I have a way of talking about that, and I say that we're all, you know, through the various technologies, uh, World Wide Web and everything, telephones and anything we want, we're all sort of connected to everyone, but we're not in relationship with very many people. And some of this thing that you're talking about, this, I mean, the idea of, the, of wisdom is knowing that you are in relationship, not just that there is a... Um, uh, an electronic connection, but that there's deep relatedness. And is that what the wisdom is that you're speaking of? Well, it is. And I think, I think you're really on point about this. There was, um, at one of the technology conferences, there was a young woman that came out into the hall. And she was the one who spoke into this, I think, in a, in a poignant way. She said, we're young, we're hip, we're sophisticated, we're, you know, the elite of the tech world. And what she saw were people on their devices and no one speaking to one another. And, you know, to be in relationship, it's not only in relationship to one another, but it's in relationship to this world. For example, growing up being raised by these elders, we understood what it meant to be intimately wedded to the environment where we knew, where we planted according to lunar cycles, where we fished according to lunar cycles, where we understood that everything we did was an act of sacredness, as an act of divine, where we are in co-partnership with something much greater than ourselves. And when you are in that relationship, the whole issue of sustainability and environmental crisis cannot exist. I mean, when we study these cultures that have been lived sustainably for thousands of years and we look more deeply, it's because of the relationship that they were in with everything. I think that the point that you make about being in relationship with one another is, is an important point because one of the things that I find that I do with an interview on CNN is that we're we'd sooner reach for our mobile devices than for the hand of someone in need. I mean, we're so quick to go from the boardroom to the bedroom with our devices and being connected 24-7, yet most of us feel isolated on, on some deeper level. And these are the kinds of conversations that, that most fascinate me as an anthropologist. So we have to find that relationship with ourselves and the world, the connection that we have to everything that is, and not just, uh, you know, this, in a certain sense, all the electronic stuff is an analog for reality, it, but it's not the real thing. Exactly right. I mean, that, that's what my experience of Hoffman has been, is to really get to the fundamental, the, the part of us that is wise, the part of us that remembers. Because as the elders everywhere I go say, you you know, you know, you've just forgotten. Wow. So that, you know, one of the things that I think is when you say we've forgotten, and you talk about indigenous cultures, it is part of remembering for each and every one of us to know 
every human being on earth is indigenous. Absolutely. Everyone, everyone is indigenous to the earth. There's no one uh, alive today that's not indigenous to the earth. It's exactly right. What's happened, at least in our current society, is we've become much more transient, much more mobile than we've ever been before. I mean, then this is global. So uh, the idea of knowing a landscape, of being, of, of knowing the tides, of know, knowing the, the lunar cycles, um, is, 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 is just a function of, of really remembering again where we come from and why it matters. We're going to go on a break in just a second, but when we come back, I want to ask you, um, how do you remember? How do you keep yourself in the presence of, of the great presence, the great spirit? Terrific question. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are your unconscious patterns holding you back from a life you truly love? For 45 years, the Hoffman Process has helped people reclaim their ability to find love, forgiveness, and their true purpose in life. According to a University of California Davis study, Hoffman Process participants significantly increased their joy, satisfaction, and emotional intelligence on a sustained and lasting basis. For more information, visit us at hoffmaninstitute.org. The Hoffman Process, when you're serious about change. Visit hoffmaninstitute.org. Are you looking for more joy, satisfaction, and love in your life? The Hoffman Process can give you the foundation and tools you need to create your ideal future. Celebrating 45 years as the premier personal growth program, the Hoffman Process has helped over 80,000 people worldwide discover answers and guidance to help them find their best life ever. Visit us at hoffmaninstitute.org for more information. The Hoffman Process, when you're serious about change. Again, visit hoffmaninstitute.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Hoffman Connection. To reach Raz and Grossi, Ed McClune, or this week's guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radio at hoffmaninstitute.org. Now, back to our program. Hello, this is Raz and Grossi. We're back speaking with National Geographic Explorer, Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay. She was the first Polynesian explorer and female fellow in the history of the National Geographic Society, and she's an internationally recognized expert in the emergent field of cultural intelligence, a dynamic, holistic system of knowledge and wisdom based on indigenous science. By the way, if you'd like to call in and speak with Dr. Lindsay, ask her your question, just do that by calling one 472 5788. That's one eight six six 
472-5788. We'll fit you into the conversation here. Or you can email us at radio at hoffmaninstitute.org. So we're back now with Dr. Lindsay. And Elizabeth, you were speaking about this. We were speaking about being in contact with the spirit of all that's alive, all that is, and recognizing that in yourself and in the world. How do you practice that? How do you find it? Well, perhaps the best way to answer that question is by giving you, sharing with you some of my experiences being out in the field with tremendous elders and visionaries in their own cultures. And because there's a, a, a thread that I have seen in my experience where all of them say, go to quietude. Go into the silence, into the deep silence, which is a reservoir where you can access all that you need and all that you wish to know is available to you. And, you know, part of what they see is somewhat um, odd in our society is that we look everywhere else. We're always looking externally for the answers, and rarely do we take the time or trust that what we have available to us is what we seek. Is this also what you learned from the Native elders when you were young? I mean, is this what it... I want to ask you, what does it mean to you to be a Native Hawaiian? What, what, what is the felt sense of that, and is, does that include this quietude? Well, you know, that, that's such a, for me, a, a, a deep question, because I was raised by these elders and also traveled through the South Pacific as a child. And in that experience, in that collective experience, I realized that it was bigger than being Hawaiian. I knew that I was a part of all of the teachers, whether they were Maori or Tahitian or Samoan, certainly with the elders in Hawaii. In Hawaii they, there was not um, a differentiation for me in a young child's mind that said, you are one thing and you are not another, which I really credit as being part of the gift of becoming an explorer because wherever I am, I feel that I am both a witness and a humble journeys person into that landscape, into that terrain, and I, I, it starts to fall away. But in, in, a, in answer to your question about being Native Hawaiian growing up, I learned certain things about my culture that I thought everyone experienced. You know, when we go, for example, into a forest to go and gather medicine or to go and gather flowers for lays, we always ask permission to enter, and we never pick anything without without that permission. Now, someone may say, well, that, you know, that's a very interesting eccentricity in a culture, but it's more than that. It's, it's because we know that everything has life to it, and we would not be so um, arrogant to think that we are, um, that this is manifest destiny, that everything that we can, can um, have dominion over is ours. It's, we, we always, I was always taught as a child to walk tenderly upon this earth. So wherever I go in the world, I practice that. I never go into a culture, first, without asking permission, two, without knowing that I am, I am a visitor, and three, without taking someone, uh, without taking something with me so that I am not going in empty handed without something to offer. And, yeah. Does, is this, by the way, this approach, is it becoming more widely accepted amongst other the other National Geographic explorers? Well, 
I, I don't know. I think that's a very good question. We, you know, we're headed into a symposium in two weeks where we talk about our work. Um, m- many of the explorers are doing very interesting work in other fields, but around anthropology, I think it's always important that wherever we go, that we always are, are not imposing what it is we're coming in with on others. And this is what I think is part of cultural intelligence, is just an etiquette just a fundamental etiquette to say, this is not my homeland. I am not going to impose what I think and my ideas of how you should behave on you. I'll give you a perfect example. In Bhutan, 25 years ago, before media started being transmitted there, there was no, women were not going on diets. They were not putting themselves on diets. Suddenly we see these models of, you know, these very thin bodies where beauty was once defined as a woman who was healthy and sturdy. Now, they're dieting for the first time because they're seeing these images being transmitted across the media. And I can go on with examples about how the West is imposing and influencing the way people are now behaving around the world. And there's a real sadness um, in, in my experience about what I'm seeing. And Elizabeth, you know, in, in the Hoffman world, we talk about patterns as something that's sent down through the generations. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been thinking maybe from a negative perspective on this topic, almost an ingrained wariness of the strangers in contained societies. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about here is a way of showing respect towards the differences between different cultures or societies when you, when you enter into that society. Right? So you're taking, taking um, I guess, respect for the differences but is it, is, has that been a problem for you in, in studying different cultures, especially indigenous cultures, a kind of wariness for the outsider? Well, I see that, Ed. I see that often. And, and, you know, many of these cultures, some of them are so remote that there, that there hasn't been a lot of engagement. But for ones that have, there's a cynicism that exists among them. There is not only a weariness, but there is a wariness about having been taken advantage of, where people come and they want to, you know, get information, whether it's it's medicinal and pharmaceutical companies or whether it's information and wisdom or knowledge or their own cultural sciences. And they, you know, and then they are left with nothing. And what I do when I go in is I always, one, I always go in very, very sensitively but promise that whatever we document is given to them completely, and then they decide and inform me about what is appropriate to share with the rest of the world so that they hold all of this knowledge that is documented for their future generations. And what we are left with is whatever they want us to share with the world. And that's the way I feel comfortable about the work that I do. But, you know, having seen that growing up with people coming into Hawaii and and you know, really, really um, um, commodifying, and you would know this, you know, having yes. lived in Hawaii for so long, commodifying ideas of aloha, ideas of, you know, how can, how can we market this? And it, it became about selling and monetizing culture. And when, when the, the fact is that when we really look deeply at culture, it has so much to offer us, much more than we can put dollar signs onto. Right. Well, I, I'm very grateful that, to that approach about offering your research back to the community to um, 
choose how much of it to disseminate throughout the world. Mm. Is there is there much reluctance in that way to releasing the the local wisdom? There hasn't been for me, and um, I know that there there has been for for other explorers and other researchers. Part of the reason that I haven't encountered that and haven't experienced it is because my mentor and other elders have. I mean, it, it, it's a very small community of elders throughout the world, and you know, it's interesting about elders. My, you know, my mentor was a navigator, a well-known celestial navigator, and he can read people as easily he could while he was alive, as easily as he could read weather conditions. So they know even before we arrive what what you're there to do. They see what your nature is. They see whether your heart is clear and and what your intentions are. So I have not had that experience because I I think that I've, um, you know, I credit the elders who have raised me to, um, to be sensitive to that and also to my mentor. And so that's not been my experience. Yeah. I think Go ahead, I think about the Hoffman uh, process a little bit along the lines that you've been speaking because people come to Hoffman burdened with unconscious negative emotional patterns that really crush aliveness in themselves and in in other people and they're not happy and out of releasing their our attachment to those negative patterns we uh, come to see the beautiful patterns of nature the beautiful patterns of life that are to be celebrated and into which we can blend so all patterns are not negative there are gorgeous beautiful patterns of life in the web of life and it sounds to me like the you know what the indigenous cultures are in touch with that and that's what they celebrate and live uh, all the time and uh, we need to let the scales fall from our eyes in order to see really what they're what they're offering us well you know Raz, you said something you know so poignant early on in this conversation is that we're all indigenous to some place we've merely forgotten the roots back to because i believe that if we start to remember back to our genealogy that we come from cultures that all used wisdom whether it was on the ocean like polynesian voyagers or in desert communities where they were also wayfarers we're all wayfinding. We're all navigators. And we have in our cultural DNA memory of these aspects of wisdom where there were brilliant um, models of, of nature and patterns with which we could learn from. Um, I just, you know, I... I think about um, my mentor and would like to speak about him for just a second because here was a man who all his life knew how to sail thousands of miles across open ocean without the use of instruments. But what he would do was synthesize seemingly unrelated bits of data where he would look at the rising and setting of stars, the waves and sequence of waves to determine his bearings, to look at the flight patterns of specific birds, or something as subtle as the color of the underbelly of clouds to determine how far he was from land. And these are brilliant um, methods of observation, which, you know, we, we now use GPS, and we rely on, you know, everything outside of our ability to observe and to become intimate, again, with nature as a way of finding our way. 
Thank you, Elizabeth. We're going to take a short break right now with National Geographic Explorer, Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay. She's the first Polynesian explorer and female fellow in the history of the National Geographic Society. So we'll be right back. We're going to take a break. If you'd like to join us, the number here is 866-472-5788. You want to ask a question of Dr. Lindsay? That's 1-866-472-5788. And we'll be back shortly on the Hoffman Connection. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you looking for more joy, satisfaction, and love in your life? The Hoffman Process can give you the foundation and tools you need to create your ideal future. Celebrating 45 years as the premier personal growth program, the Hoffman Process has helped over 80,000 people worldwide discover answers and guidance to help them find their best life ever. Visit us at hoffmaninstitute.org for more information. The Hoffman Process, when you're serious about change. Again, visit hoffmaninstitute.org. Are your unconscious patterns holding you back from a life you truly love? For 45 years, the Hoffman Process has helped people reclaim their ability to find love, forgiveness, and their true purpose in life. According to a University of California Davis study, Hoffman Process participants significantly increased their joy, satisfaction, and emotional intelligence on a sustained and lasting basis. For more information, visit us at hoffmaninstitute.org. The Hoffman Process, when you're serious about change. Visit hoffmaninstitute.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to The Hoffman Connection. To reach Raz and Grossi, Ed McClune, or this week's guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radio at hoffmaninstitute.org. Now, back to our program. And we're back talking to National Geographic Explorer, Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay. She's the first Polynesian explorer and female fellow in the history of the National Geographic Society. And, Raz, you were going to ask uh, Elizabeth about something in terms of indigenous wisdom and our current cultural situation, right? Well, yeah. The key point here is that um, we are all, everyone, every human being alive is indigenous to the earth. There aren't just some people who are the indigenous people. We are all the indigenous people. But some people, most of us, don't know that we're indigenous. And so we have been relating to nature, relating to the earth, as if it's foreign to us. And until we kind of remember what we've lost and the indigenous people have not lost it, so they can become our teachers. That seems to me to be a path rich in possibility for reclaiming um, a sustainable life on Earth for all for all life, not just human beings. And Elizabeth uh, has been addressing herself to the 
issues of indigenous people, but how do we get the rest of us guys to realize that we're indigenous too? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you said it when you said remember. We have temporarily forgotten. And I think Emerson, there was a great quote by Emerson where he said, if the stars come out one night in a thousand, men would believe and adore. You know, because the stars come out every night, we sit inside with computers and television and other devices, and we fail to look at this miraculous system we call the world. And if we start to rekindle that memory that we are part of something so much bigger and so much greater than ourselves, there's something that reawakens in us. I mean, I think part of the dulling sensation that's gone on in the society is we've become so enraptured by celebrityism and celebrity worship and media and so forth that we've become disconnected from those things that matter the most. Elizabeth, you know, um, having spent a good deal of time in Hawaii and then just recently in Greece with a, uh, another island people, one of the parts of this, the whole conversation about indigenous culture to me is um, aliveness in the body. Mm. You know, ta- and you're talking about numbing, and, and mm-hmm. these are two cultures that are very much alive in the present moment mm-hmm. in an essential, essential experience of being alive. Mm-hmm. And I think that what you're talking about, too, is not only just how we're cut off from what we'd call maybe a spiritual wisdom, but you can't dissociate that from a physical, sensual wisdom as well. Completely, Ed. And, and I think you, you know, this is a very interesting point that you bring up. And I'll cite one example because it continues to be very profound for me. When I was on a small remote island in Micronesia called Satwal, I lived uh, in a society of people where mirrors did not exist. I did not see a mirror for... Um, well into five, five and a half weeks that I was there. What that does, especially for a woman when there's no self-referencing, I watched women that were well over 90 who were flirting madly with my crew. I mean, they felt sensuous and beautiful and alive and gorgeous. And here were women who were missing most of their teeth with you know, breasts down to their waist and who just were like little girls who would sit under the, in the moonlight and sing as if they were still in, in, in grade school. And then I come back to the U.S. where everywhere I turn I see women who are gorgeous who really are completely discontented with themselves, you know, in many ways loathe the way they look and always have some harsh criticism about themselves or their body or their, their features. And it makes me sad because, you know, we are inundated with media and marketing that tells us that we are not enough just as we are, that if we just do a little bit more, if we lose a little bit less, if we, if, you know, and the list goes on and on, and I know that you know what I'm talking about, that these kinds of references that are constantly bombarding our systems lead us to believe the illusion that we are not enough just as we are. Right. The promise of happiness in something outside ourselves um, whether it's physical beauty or buying a new car or an iPod or something, um, leads us farther from our innate wisdom. Well, that idea that, you know, our value is, is extrinsic it is a lie. That we are worth or we become worthy because we can, you know, because our portfolios are this size or our, our, our pants are this size. I mean, it's nonsense. You know, there's an African saying where um, 
an African elder said, um, your society is worshipping the jester while the king stands in plain clothes. And I believe that he's so right. We're looking in the wrong direction for happiness and peace and contentment. Well, there's this idea inside of our culture. Maybe it's uh, at this point in our culture what, what everything is based on, but everything has been turned into a commodity, and happiness has been turned into a commodity. And any time you watch television, if you drink this kind of beer, the you know the idea is that if you drink this beer, girls are going to love you, right. or if you drive this kind of car, you're going to be happy, or whatever it is, and Basically, people are trying to produce enough so they can acquire the symbols of happiness, thinking that if they have the symbols of happiness, they will be happy. So they've got the arrows going like it's work, work hard, have stuff, be happy. And I think that's wrong. I mean, I think the real formula is be, do, have, be, be yourself, find out what your true passion is. Do what you're good at to fulfill that and have the, the happiness and the things that go along with that, with that self that's expressing itself into the world. Um, and, you know, that's a lot what we do in Hoffman is to help to get, to help people to get their arrows going in the right direction, if, they're, if you will. Well, I'm really delighted to hear you say that. And I understand that there's a program now at Hoffman that really supports that thinking and I, I it's such an important conversation to be having you know for us to be investing our lives and to really redirect those arrows well you are working I mean I know that you travel all over the world as a speaker as a keynote speaker and uh, just before the show we were talking a little bit about your experience in India speaking with hundreds of members of the young presidents organization if I'm not mistaken you said actually control like 30 percent of the GDP of Southeast Asia and what did you find in these people? Well, it was interesting. I mean, clearly, they're very successful in materialistic terms. And yet there was a deeper longing for something more because they knew that once they have reached those heights and once they've attained what they thought was the pinnacle of success, that, in fact, it didn't give them the satisfaction or fulfillment that they were ultimately seeking. And, you know, clearly we're in um, a period of instability financially around the world. So they're going through all of those stresses as well. But the reason that I was happy to be speaking to this group is because they affect the lives of millions of people. And when we start having conversations with people who are directing the, those many lives, it's an important conversation. So, you know, this deeper yearning, um, Raz, is something that I think Hoffman is so good at speaking to. And um, it really is, I believe, the foundation of um, building lives that that have deep meaning and, and fulfillment. I know that that was my experience about coming to Hoffman, and that was about four, four and a half years ago that I, I went through the program. Yeah, and I think the experience of going through Hoffman also, also is the experience of becoming natural. Yes. So that it's not like something that we're putting on top, but rather it's something that's being revealed, like yes. who you really are. Yes. And you said something earlier about the scales falling off. It, it really feels like an unveiling, an emergence of our true selves, of our truest selves, and letting go of the idea of who we believed we had to be in order to be successful in the world. 
Well, that's right. And as you know, there's a new book out. I, I didn't, I haven't read it, but I've, I heard an interview with the author, uh, and it was the book was called Your Brain on Nature, and the author was speaking about just being outside, just being in, a, in in green environments, even just having plants in your office changes the way your brain works. It literally makes you more intelligent. And the prescription is just to go outside, to go for hikes, to go as deep into nature as you can and let it work on you because nature is a unified field. Yeah. And it tends to help us unify and integrate and be more ourselves. And so I think Kaufman allows us to dispel a lot of the cultural myths that we are all captured by. And 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 then actually going into nature is a different experience after you've done the Hoffman process. The colors become more vivid, the scents become, you know, stronger, everything it's like you can see you can see that that everything is alive. Mm-hmm. And as children we knew that. We experienced that when we ran wild and the wind blew through our hair and we slept under the stars. We knew that. I was recently um, seeing a, a quote that I want to read to you. I was inspired. And I just picked it up off my computer. E.O. Wilson was a professor of biology in, at Harvard University, and he, he won the Pulitzer Prize twice. He said this, What we seek to recreate is the peculiar biotic environment that cradled the human species. The human body and mind are precisely adapted to this world, notwithstanding its trials and dangers, and that is why we think it's beautiful. In this respect, Homo sapiens conform to a basic principle of organic evolution that all species prefer to gravitate to the environment in which their genes were assembled. It's called habitat selection. There lies survival for humanity, and there lies mental peace as prescribed by our genes, and I might add, by the elders. We are consequently unlikely ever to find any other place or conceive of any other home as beautiful as this blue planet was before we began to change it. That's a beautiful quote. Thank you. And. We'll just step out here and uh, go to break and see if we can find anyone who would like to give us a phone call. Talk to Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay. Give us a phone call at 866-472-5788 here on the Hoffman Connection. Again, the number 866-472-5788 as we move into the next break. And I just want to remind you that 5 o'clock this afternoon and every Tuesday afternoon, um, Pacific time, you can be part of an introductory call, a confidential call, uh, with the Hoffman Institute staff to find out more about the process that Raz was just talking about. Um, and to get more information on that, you can go to our website, hoffmaninstitute.org. Anyway, we'll be back for our fourth and final segment with Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are your unconscious patterns holding you back from a life you truly love? 
For 45 years, the Hoffman process has helped people reclaim their ability to find love, forgiveness, and their true purpose in life. According to a University of California Davis study, Hoffman process participants significantly increased their joy, satisfaction, and emotional intelligence on a sustained and lasting basis. For more information, visit us at hoffmaninstitute.org. The Hoffman process, when you're serious about change, visit hoffmaninstitute.org. Are you looking for more joy, satisfaction, and love in your life? The Hoffman Process can give you the foundation and tools you need to create your ideal future. Celebrating 45 years as the premier personal growth program, the Hoffman Process has helped over 80,000 people worldwide discover answers and guidance to help them find their best life ever. Visit us at hoffmaninstitute.org for more information. The Hoffman Process, when you're serious about change. Again, visit hoffmaninstitute.org. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Hoffman Connection. To reach Raz and Grossi, Ed McClune, or this week's guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radio at hoffmaninstitute.org. Now, back to our program. And we're back on the Hoffman Connection talking to Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay. And Elizabeth, you know, for our listeners' sake, the... The wisdom of what you've been telling us is obviously you know, dead on. Um, could you talk about is there commonality among the different cultures you've studied and been part of that help us find our way um, back to our own innate wisdom? Well, you know, Ed, I'm, you know, my my first point of reference will always be with the navigators, with the wayfinders, because that was my study, my intense study for ten years about how we navigate our lives, both metaphorically and literally. But a commonality throughout the world, in my experience, has been this sense of the hero and the heroine's journey. Because we're all, I mean, you know, this, this thing called life is, is, is our journey. And, and to make it sacred, one of the things that I learn about these cultures is that they have not only integrated wisdom, but they use ceremony and see that that whatever point they're going through, whether it's it's going as as Campbell so eloquently describes in his work, you know, we are we are going into dra- we are going into caves and slaying dragons. We are you know carrying an elixir back to our our community, but in the process, it is sometimes it sometimes feels like a very solitary road. Sometimes the most difficult and challenging road. But with these cultures throughout the world, they always found ways of celebrating each of those turning points because those are markers on the journey. And we don't have that in this society. For example, in the cultures that I have been studying, there is a practice where men go from being what's known as princes to kings. We refer to that often as a midlife crisis. In fact, it's a deep grieving process I have found in certain societies 
where a young boy grows up with great dreams for himself. Then he enters adulthood where he takes on responsibilities and the responsibilities begin to wear on him. And then there comes a point in his life where he realizes that he will never be what he dreamed of becoming as a young boy. And he must grieve those dreams. It doesn't mean that he cannot dream anew. It just means that he must go through a period where he must grieve the man he will never be. And in the society, oftentimes we joke, we don't know how to deal with it. You know, they're slapped on the back, they go out and buy a sports car, they, you know, start to extra, they, they do all of these things because they don't realize that they are going into a dark night of the soul where they must grieve. And if we as a society could be more compassionate and understand that there is a process that a man is making from prince to king, we could celebrate with him all of it, including the, the sorrow, the, the grief, the fear, the mystery of not knowing what his life will ultimately be so that when he becomes a king, he can dream again. Societies do this. We don't, uh, unfortunately, here. Um, there may be, you know, certain groups that do, but for the, the most part in the West, we don't. And so that's what I find among these cultures outside of, of the West and outside of Western society is that there are turning points that they celebrate by creating ritual, by understanding that, that this is a sacred walk and a sacred journey, and we all make it. Right. Rather than trying to suppress all those natural life states, they bring them out and make it a, a celebration and community. Completely. Right. We are at this crazy point in our own culture where... Um, you know, for the most part, people weren't living as long, so we don't have an understanding of what it means to be old. And at the same time, we have celebrated youth so much that the only idea people have of getting old is not getting old. Well, Rez, you raise a very interesting point, because in the cultures that I visit primarily, becoming an elder is is a great honor to have an elder with you in your home is the highest honor in some cultures where here in the west we put them away because we don't want to be reminded of our mortality we're afraid of aging we look at youth and we i we celebrate youth and and in merit many many ways but i think that it's an important point to really understand that being an elder is talking being with with those who have lived a full life and have much to offer us just today I read in the New York Times uh, something that brought uh, uh, tears to the eyes of the doctors who did this um, bit of research. They were working in Alzheimer's units. These people were completely vegetative, and they, they put headsets over on, their, on them, and these people were just lying there vegetative. They couldn't move, no response, and they started playing the music of their youth, mm. and they all started smiling and singing along and became happy and animated while that music was playing. So there's a place in them which is completely alive still. And, you know, we, we, are, we lose that place that's alive, that knows life and that's connected to life with zest. And, uh, and, and we have to find ways through the rituals, through the ceremonies, to, um, to, stay, to, keep, to keep that alive so that even when the elders pass on, their spirit is with, mm-hmm. is with the, the generations they're leaving behind. Absolutely. And, you know, the rituals can be very simple, and they can be very personal. We can create them. I mean, they, they, there's no formal ritual. People can create ritual in their own lives in the most simplistic ways. 
Well, for me, uh, you know, one of the things that I do wherever I travel is before I step foot on a new territory, I always ask for permission quietly in my own silent prayer. But wherever I go, I always cleanse the space. You know, particularly because I travel so much, I'm, you know, I'm in hotels most everywhere I go, but I make sure that the space where I lay my head is clear because I understand wherever I stand is holy ground. And when we understand that, when we know that where we are is holy ground, then wherever we walk and whatever words we utter, even to a stranger, non-verbally, we look into the eyes and we know that we are looking into the eyes of the divine. That's why in many cultures when they greet each other what when when it is translated it is i recognize the god in you when we live from that place that for me becomes ceremony and ritual hey raz i think your microphone is off and not coming through here oh a friend of mine was ta- telling me about taking his family on safari in africa and they would travel they would stay in some places, but then they would go uh, and travel for maybe 100, 200 miles a day by Jeep. And he started noticing that when they would stop, his driver would get out and just approach someone who looked like a stranger, and they would face each other and exchange words very briefly. And he noticed this a, a, a number of times over the days, and finally he said, do you know these people? No. What are you saying? He said, I approach them, and I say, I am here. And they say to me, I see you. Mm. That ritual existed in that oh. culture. I am here. I see you. That's it. You know, I I really appreciate that story. When I was in India, I saw a woman dressed in a magnificent sari filling a pothole with cow dung. And I, as I got closer to her, I was with a translator, and I said, can you ask her how she can be dressed so beautifully for doing this kind of work? And so he did, and without hesitation, she looked up at him, and she spoke, and he translated, and what she said was, I dress for the divine. So this woman knew what her life was about. When we start to recognize that which is divine within us, that which is divine, that we can see it so readily and that we can actually really see others, is such an important practice. Find it in yourself, and you see it in everyone else. Absolutely. We want, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay, for the time she spent with us today and the wisdom she has imparted. I want to invite everyone to come and listen next week. Uh, Maurice Taylor and Shauna McGee will be with us. They're authors of The New Couple. They have whole new rules for relationship in the 21st century. And just a little secret, they're going to teach us how to combine sexual chemistry with best friend chemistry to make your relationship explosive. So tune in next week. Until then... This is the Hoffman Connection, Razzing Rossi, Ed McLoon saying so long. Thank you again for being a part of the Hoffman Connection. Please join your hosts, Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon, again next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then... Make it an outstanding week.